Good morning, everybody, again. Good morning. This is the final Sunday of August in 2023. Can you believe that? Oh, look at the people. Oh, it's crazy. It is crazy. Yes. I've heard a couple people say last week how they're really looking forward to the cooler temperatures, and I saw some of you stink-eye them from across the room because you're really not looking forward to the end of a warm summer. Totally unrelated, but I was thinking about this. Y'all been following the news over the last week and a half when that hurricane came up the West Coast, went over um, California. Death Valley got a year's worth of rain in one day. Three to five inches of rain were projected for Death Valley in one day received a year's worth of rain. And you know what's so cool about that? Um, not, you know, mass flooding or anything like that. What's so cool about that is that when you get that much water deposited in one place, in a place where there's such dry and barren land, we don't realize it, but the desert looks so dead. But there are seeds. There is life waiting to spring to life. And all it needs to be is watered. All it needs to do is get a heavy water. And I'm sure as people are taking pictures in some of these areas over the next couple of weeks, you're going to see a transformed area in places of that area, in that area of the, of the country because of the amount of water that flooded that space in such a short period of time. Why? Because the things that look dead and look barren were actually watered. So why are we here this morning? We're here to be watered. We're here to be watered. We're here to be fed by what God has for us. We're here to encourage one another. That doesn't just happen through music, though it does happen through music. And listen, I mean, we don't say it as often as we probably should, but aren't you appreciative just for the faithfulness of our worship team to continue and continue? Aren't you faithful? It's a big deal. They give a ton of time in practices throughout the week and gatherings and doing things that they do. Um, We do that, and we allow God to water us. We hear the word of God. We open up scripture. We pray for one another. All of these things are ways that we can be watered. And my heart for each one of you today, whether you're sitting in this room or you're watching online or you're listening through podcasts, um, is that you are watered. Because the more that you allow yourself to be watered by God in his truth and with the people around you, the more things are going to grow inside your heart. So I just want to encourage you with that. If you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to the book of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 verses 19. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 6, 19, but we're not going to go there just yet. If you have a Bible, you can go. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You can go to Matthew. It's the first of the four Gospels. If you want to follow along in the seats uh, in front of you, underneath, there's Bibles that you can have um, to use. And if you don't have a Bible and a translation, excuse me, that you understand, take that with you. If, I have a, if it has a Bridge Community Church stamp on it inside, which the old ones did, uh, just cross it out and write your name on it and take it with you. We don't care. Uh, we want to make sure that you have a copy of the Bible in a translation in a language that you understand and that you're comfortable understanding. Um, but over the next couple of weeks, now we're getting ready to kick off some series in October. We finished up Bible engagement at the end of Jan- in June. The Most of the sun- summer has been basically open services for the, the speakers to speak on whatever they want to speak on. Um, but over the next couple of weeks, because I'm speaking for the next few weeks, I was looking at this and saying, this is an opportunity for me to do something a little bit different that's not part of what we would normally do. So I decided to put together a mini-series, and I'm calling it Firm Foundations. So for the next three weeks, we're going to do a mini-series called Firm Foundations. Okay? Um, why? Well, because there's a passage in Matthew chapter 7 we're going to base everything off of, 
and I want to explain that to you. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Okay, I know you said we were in Matthew chapter 6. You can hold your finger in that spot, but we're going to start in Matthew 7 because this is the theme passage for the next three weeks. Okay, Matthew chapter 7, 24 through 27. Jesus said this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. There are over 7 billion people in the world that we live in today. Diverse, with unique differences in many different ways, in culture, in beliefs, in languages. There's so many differences of the 7 billion people in our world, but we all do share a couple of things in common. Here's one I want to say. There are two ways, according to this passage, that you can build your life. And this applies to everyone who lives on the face of the earth, past, present, and future. Jesus is saying there are two ways you can choose to build your life. You can choose to build it on a foundation that is guaranteed to fall. Or you can build your life on a foundation that is guaranteed to stand. Which one would you choose? You can choose a foundation that will last forever. Or you can choose a foundation that will disintegrate and be worthless in a matter of years. Which one are you going to build your life on? Jesus said the answer to this determines the outcome, what you choose. But he said specifically the key to doing this and which one you build has to do with hearing his words and doing what? Putting them into practice. He said if you want to build your house on a foundation that lasts forever, you hear his words and you put them into practice. What words is he talking about? You could say he's talking about the whole Bible. He's actually not, because the New Testament didn't exist when he was speaking at that point. So a lot of the stuff that exists in Acts and uh, 1 Corinthians and Romans, it wasn't even there. It didn't even exist during that time. What is he talking about? Is he talking about the Old Testament? Not really. He's talking about a very specific time that he just finished up. Actually, if you look back a little bit in Matthew chapter 7, what you'll find is Matthew 7, this passage, is a conclusion of one of the longest, one will believe to be the Sermon on the Mount, is one of the longest, continuous messages that Jesus taught anyone that's recorded in the Bible. This is how he wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you have heard of that. It's in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And after he gave all of this teaching, after he gave all the instruction, he wrapped it up and he said, if you take the words that you just heard and put them into practice, it's like you're building your, rock, your, your life on the rock. And if you don't do it, it's like you're building your life on the sand. So what was he talking about here? Well, I told you it's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm sure some of you have heard the topic or the, the subject of the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't know the Sermon on the Mount, I'd encourage you to go and read it. Read it in its entirety from 5, 6, and 7 because it all happened, we believe, in one specific space. But like I said, the Sermon on the Mount is the most influential teaching of Jesus recorded in Scripture. And it's also the longest continuous message. 
Some people have said to me over the years, I've read the Sermon on the Mount, Pastor Paul, and I can read it in a whole lot less time than you speak. <laughs> and if Jesus only needed 15 minutes, anyway, you know what I'm going with that. You know? So I just laugh tongue-in-cheek, and I'm like, well, you know, Jesus is Jesus. He can do things that we can't. But some people see the Sermon on the Mount as a standard by which we should live. It's a moral code, if you will. This is how God's children is supposed to live, are supposed to live. And there's some truth to that. He gives a moral code on how we're supposed to live. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount actually has over 18 examples of things we should embrace if we're going to walk in a way that honors God. Over 18 different individual thoughts and moral character things that we should embrace. He talks about things like loving our enemies, If we're going to be followers of God and really be godly in our attitudes and behaviors, we should love our enemies. He describes in Matthew 6 the Lord's Prayer. This is how you are supposed to pray. Some of you have heard that. This is where we get the golden rule. Some of you have heard the golden rule. And the golden rule is not he who has the gold makes the rules. No, the golden rule is to what? Treat others the way that you would want. See, you know this, right? This all comes out of the Sermon on the Mount, five, six, and seven. There's 18 examples of that in addition to the Beatitudes that kicks off the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, which is eight specific blessings or promises for people who genuinely choose to live according to God's character. If you do this, blessed are those who, blessed are those who, eight different ones in the beginning of Matthew 5. All of these things come together in a way that teach us a way of moral living. But is that really what the Sermon on the Mount is fully about? Not really. It is a piece of it, but it also does something else. It expands the Old Testament law. In the the Old Testament, there was the law of God. Some of you know Moses came down from the mountain with the Old Testament law. He expands the law in a way. Jesus does this. He's so amazing the way he does this. He reveals our inability to uphold the law in our own strength and our own power. How do you know that? Because he says things in the Sermon of the Mount like, you know you say you're not supposed to murder anybody, but I tell you if you hate your brother in your heart, it's as if you've already murdered them. Ouch. Right? Well, I've never murdered anybody. Well, have you ever hated somebody? Guilty as charged. I literally have hated some people in my life. And if you're judging me right now, then you're a sinner just like I am. You're also in denial. He also says things like, you know, it says you're not supposed to commit adultery. But I tell you the truth, if you look lustfully upon a woman in any time, it's like you've committed adultery in your heart. How many of the men that heard that in that moment went, "Uh uh-oh, that's a problem. Why? What he was doing was not to try to make people feel bad, wasn't trying to have them uphold a standard that they just were. In a, unable to live to and create condemnation in their life. No, what he was saying was, there's a law that God created in the Old Testament. I'm teaching you the way that you're supposed to live. M- recognize that God's standard and God's law is so great and so significant, you have to follow these. But if you try to do this on your own, you will fail. Because we're still human people. We still make mistakes. We're still imperfect. So it's not just the standard by which we should live. We recognize in the midst of it how much we need Jesus. That's the whole point of it. Because at the end, people will look at this and say, if this is what the standard of living is like, we're all destined to fail. And Jesus said, now you got it. Because you are unable to solve your spiritual condition with physical means. You with me? 
This is so important to understand. So why am I sharing all that with you? Because here's what I believe. Like I said, there's over 18 different um, examples of teachings plus the Beatitudes. You say, how are we going to do this in three weeks? I've picked three that we're going to look at over the next three weeks that are teachings that Jesus has in this Sermon on the Mount. And if we truly hear these words and we put them into practice, it is as if we are going to be building our life on the rock and not the sand. Three things that you don't just come this morning and I want to encourage you just to hear but I really am hoping and praying that you would take these things to heart and as you go into your weeks, that you would listen and think about it. Go back into the scriptures. Ask, ask questions and encourage the Holy Spirit to speak to you about how maybe he wants you to make some adjustments in your life. None of us are above making adjustments in our lives. Is that true? You agree with that? None of us have arrived. No one is super holy. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, we're all in different places, but even when we are in our greatest sometimes, Jesus says, that's great that you're here, but I still have more than I need to transform in you. Why? Because we're not in heaven. We're not in eternity yet. There's still this ugliness that we have to deal with sometimes. So what are the three that we're going to talk about? Well, that's where we get to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 19 through 24. So we're going to read that together. Let's read 19 through 24 um, together. You can follow along. Jesus says this in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust or vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Father, I pray as we look at this scripture today that we would be good stewards of what the passage says and means and what it doesn't mean. God, that we would walk away with a better understanding of how you're using this to draw us closer to you so that we don't bring in our own assumptions and pre-understandings. May our hearts be open to what you want to share with us this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of all the teachers of the Sermon on the Mount, of all the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, I think this is one of the most important, if not the most important, of all of them. I'm not saying I'm right. Someone might say, well, I think this one's better, and this is why. And that's fine. You could say that, and we can have a conversation. I'm not going to die on this hill. But I do think this is definitely in the top three of something we need to talk about. And let me explain why. Because it's not about what we do. It's about ownership. It's about the condition of our heart. It's about who we decide is our master and who we choose to be a slave to. And let me tell you, when we choose to align ourselves to one, remember Jesus very clear in verse 24, he said, you can't serve both. In neither situation did he say that we were the master. He said, you're either a slave to God or you're a slave to mammon, which this means money, but it's talking about an abundance of wealth and materialism. Okay? This is why this is so important. 
Because I think foundationally, this is where we're at a crossroad in our journey to say, if we don't choose to become followers and a slave to God, to let him be the core of who we are, then our actions will turn us in a direction that walk us further away from God. It's important for us to remember that this is really about ownership. Now, let me say this before we go down this path, because I think this can be really misinterpreted. This passage does not condemn wealth. This passage does not condemn a certain standard of living. It has nothing to do with that. And if you think that's where it's going, I can tell you you're misguided. That's not what this is about. It's not about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate, about how much is too much and what's not acceptable. Just take that and throw it away because that's not what Jesus is talking about. How do I know that? Well, if that were the case, we'd be in huge trouble because the people that Jesus was speaking this to was speaking this to were a group of people in that region, most of whom were ha- they, they were poor, beyond poor. They were not people with lots of wealth and material possessions. In fact, everyone in this room or everyone listening to this would be far wealthier than any of those people that he was speaking to during this time. How do we know? Here's one simple example. The people in that area would not have generally been very wealthy. In fact, many of them would have been fortunate to have a few different sets of clothing to choose from on a daily basis to wear. Now, I'm willing to bet if we all went to your house... Houses. And we opened up your drawers. We'd find more than two or three outfits for you to choose from. Am I right? Yes. She'll be nodding your head. Yes, you are right. That's fine. You know, and so much so that we don't just have outfits to choose from. We buy silly outfits to choose from sometimes, right? Right? I mean, like somebody gave me a Bob Ross pajama set last year because they knew I liked Bob Ross, you know? (laughs) You know who Bob Ross is? Anyone know? Happy little, che- happy little trees. Happy little trees. No, I'm not going to wear it. Whoever said that. <laughs> we have a little happy little trees. The guy that painted on PBS years ago. Right? I mean, it was fun. It was cute. Right? I mean, one of my kids made me a pair of pajamas one time. And I, I mean, just, there's fun stuff that we buy. And I'm just, I'm saying this in a silly kind of a way. But the truth of the matter is, none of us understand poverty the way that the people understood poverty that Jesus was speaking to. And yet he's telling these people, think about the weight of what he's telling these people, that have a handful of clothes, they work really hard, they live in dirt floor buildings, sometimes huts, sometimes little brick and mortar, like little brick and mortar places with individual, maybe single rooms for their families. He's telling them in verse 19, do not store up for yourself treasures in earth where all the stuff around you can deteriorate. Instead, store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. And then he says something really strong, and he says, because the things that you put your priorities to, the treasure that you build up, reveals what's in your heart. It reveals, if you will, who owns you. That's why this passage is so important. It is not about money. It is not about having more or less. It's not about giving away your wealth and your income. It's about ownership. And that's why I think this is so powerful. Two things I think are important for us. The bottom line, he wasn't talking to wealthy people, I said that. And yet he still taught them not to make their purpose in life about amassing an abundance of wealth. Here's why. Two things I want to mention briefly this morning that I think are important for us to understand. These are principles that apply for people 2,000 years ago, just like they apply for us today. Number one, humans are born at a moment in time but have been created for eternity. 
Jesus is speaking a truth to the people around him. It has nothing to do with their economic status. That's why it applies to us today in the United States, just like it applied to them 2,000 years ago in Israel. Humans are born at a moment in time. We are all born in a moment in time. We have birthdays, right? For a moment in time, but we have been created for eternity. The danger is when we think our life begins and ends in this world that we know right now. That is not the way God has created us to be. In fact, in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he says very specifically, he, God, has made everything beautiful in his time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Those of you that have known me for years have heard me say this over and over again. I love using this scripture to talk to people who don't know Jesus or don't believe in religion or God because he has set eternity in the human heart. What is he saying? There's something in us that has contemplates and continues to contemplate the meaning of life and why we are on this planet. What is the purpose of all of this? To live and to die and then just be buried in the ground? Or is there something greater than ourself? We are searching for the answer to fill that hole. That answer is in God himself and the solution is Jesus Christ. He has created eternity in our hearts. This is important for us to understand because the world around you will want you to think that the most important thing you can pour your time and your money and your effort and your everything into is for what you're experiencing right here, right now in this world. Because this is all that matters. And if Jesus were sitting here this morning, he would say, that's wrong. This is not all that matters. He told them, don't spend all of your time, all of your resource, all of your effort storing up treasures that are going to disappear. Instead, put your effort and your purpose in your life towards things that will last forever. That's the first thing. Humans are born at a moment in time, but they've been created for eternity. That's one principle to remember. The second one is this. What we choose to invest in while living in this world impacts our today and our eternity. The things you and I choose to invest in here, in this world, it impacts our today, and it impacts our eternity. So just think about these two things as we go through the passage briefly again, and I want you to just think about how those things now overlaid on this scripture could have a real impact on the way that we choose to live and what Jesus is trying to say. So I'm going to go back and reread the passage, and I'm going to share a couple things specifically about each area and how we can walk this out with confidence. Beginning in verse 19 again, from 19 to 21, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Doesn't this make sense now if you think about the fact that we are born in a moment, but we're created for an eternity? Doesn't that make more sense of why he's saying this? He's saying, don't spend all of your effort in the thing that's the moment, because the moment will be gone, and eternity lasts forever. But he says, store up for the things that don't ever fall away or, just, or are destroyed. He's sharing the reality of these two worlds, the world of the earth that we live in and the heavenly world. And each have wealth and treasures, but they are not of equal value. There is value in each one of them, all right? In fact, we need some of them in both ways. They, but they don't have the same amount of value, but we store up and we use the ones that our heart leads us to most, 
Whatever our heart is saying and whatever is in our heart is the thing we're going to give ourselves to more than the other. And Jesus said, focus on the things that are eternal, not the things that are heavenly. So I was thinking about how I could illustrate this this morning. And here's what I came up with. Okay, here we go. Ta-da. How many of you know what this game is? Look at your hands. Some of your hands are going up tentative because you've been badly wounded and there's trauma. Some of your hands are up with like pumped fists because you're going, yeah, let's get it done, right? Monopoly is a game that's been around for a very, very long time. I've played this with my family. We're still on talking terms at this point. I've played this with when I was a little kid and when I've been an adult, we've done this. I remember being at uh, a, a vacation camp with my brother-in-law one time playing this and Leslie was playing for a moment and my brother-in-law and I got so involved <laughs> that she tapped out. She's <laughs> like, I, I'm not going to do this anymore because you guys are acting like bozos. So this game, some of you understand this game. This is an actually really fun game, especially if you like to crush people, Okay. <laughs> But I'm going to save this because I wanted to write it down. Here's the motto of this game when you look it up. Fast dealing property trading game, okay? Buy, sell, dream, and scheme. Bankrupt your opponents and win it all. And it's still like one of the most popular selling games in the history of board games. It's attractive, isn't it? Why am I sharing this with you? Well, I remember when I was a kid, I want to say I was probably about 10 years old, growing up on Long Island, or for you New Yorkers, Long Island, Playing this game with my sister, my mom, and my dad. We had a little table in the corner of our living room. We had this game out, and we played it for three days. Okay? Now, we didn't, like, not go to work or go to school or anything, but it was like after dinner, we would go and we would play. Okay? And what do we know about the game of Monopoly? We know that there's a board. Okay? I'm not going to take the board out. But we know that there's a board. We know that there are properties you can buy, right? We know that there are houses that you can put on those properties, right? There's hotels you can put on these hot properties. The goal is to collect as much stuff as you can and then make it so expensive as you can so that when everyone else lands on it, you get all of their money and everything that they have an asset for so that you own it all, right? That's the goal. So basically, you want to basically bankrupt everybody, like it said. That's the goal, and you have the person, you're the guy that wins, and that's really demented, but that's what we like to do in this game. So why am I saying all of that? Well, I remember as a 10-year-old playing with my family how awesome it was to get money because 10-year-olds don't have jobs for the most part. And I remember taking the money and giving money for this property and giving money for that property. And here's what I'll tell you right off the top of the head, my head, and I remember this like it was yesterday. I didn't win, okay? Three, three days later into it, I was broke. I was watching everybody else walk go around the board, and I was broke, okay? And depending on who you talk to, and I still to this day can't remember exactly who won, but I do remember someone having a pile of cash, Okay? They owned it all, and they were the big cheese, their head honcho, the big man on campus. They knew everything. They were in charge, and I was flat broke. I had nothing at that point, okay? They won. It was so great. Everything was fine. Here's what happened. We closed the board up. We put the money back in the box. The game was over. Everything that represented wealth 
during that game meant nothing when the game was over. Think about that with me just for a moment. All of the money, all of the resource, all the assets, all of these hotels, and these are nice hotels, by the way. (laughs) All of these things meant absolutely nothing when the game was over. How do I know? Because this isn't real. In the context of the game, it had huge value. You follow me? Huge value. In fact, I was giving money out. I thought it was great. How ridiculous would it have been? Let's say hypothetically my dad won. He probably did. Let's say that my dad won and he had all of this money and he walked out of the house with all of this money and he stuffed it in his pocket and he walked out and he said, you know what? I'm going to go pay the mortgage three months in advance. And he went down to the bank and he said, I know my mortgage is X number of dollars. There you go. What do you think the bank would say to my father in that moment? Well, after they probably would laugh, but they'd probably say, Mr. Kemper, just hold on for one minute. I need to make a phone call. Right? Why would they do that? Because there's no value to this. But he, didn't he win the game? Didn't he win the game? Did you ever hear the quote when you were growing up? Or maybe you've heard it more recently. He who dies with the most toys, what? Wins? No, he who dies with the most toys dies. And so does the value. Why am I sharing all of this? Because if you equate this to the world that we live in, while we're in this space, there is value associated with these things. Am I right? Of course. This money buys, sells, trades. You can build properties. You can give to others. You can get out of jail. You can go and get paid. There's all these things that you can do in this game. And it all has a purpose in this world right here, right now. But if our heart's desire and our focus is the game, we'll never invest for eternity. And when God calls upon us and takes us home and this game is over, we have nothing of value to show for it. But Lord, we were so focused on all these, right? Because at the end of the day, as I heard someone say again last week, you never see a hearst. You never see um, a U-Haul following a hearse. There's never a U-Haul following a hearse. They tried this in Egypt for hundreds and hundreds of years. And guess what? None of the pharaohs that died with all of their stuff took it with them. You know who took it? Grave robbers. It's either stolen or in museums today. They even killed and buried servants with them for their next life. And did any of it go with them? No. You You know what goes with them? what they invest for eternity, what they do for eternity. That's what ends up going with them. Now, I want to say this this way, just so you understand what I'm trying to say, because, again, this isn't saying wealth is bad and poverty is good. In fact, you might be asking yourself, well, which one am I? Am I a master or am I a slave? Or I'm saying, am I a slave to money and things or am I a slave to God? And I want to give you one word to think about because I think there's a lot of ways you can evaluate it, but I'd like to give you one word to think about today. And it's a, it's a measuring tool to ask yourself whether or not your heart is positioned towards stuff and the world, or is your heart positioned towards the things of God? And that word is contentment. This is a hard word to hear. It's actually the 10th commandment, but contentment doesn't mean 
to just be okay with your current income level, your situation, your standard of living, your retirement account. Contentment has nothing to do with that. My question for you to ponder would be, if some or all of those things changed in your life today, could you still say, I choose to praise, to glorify the name of all names? I lost that job. I choose to pray. My income level got cut in half. I glorify the name of all names. My cars keep breaking down. Lord, I will lift your name on high. I don't have what the other person has, but I choose to continue. My life falls apart in 2007 slash 2008 when the stock market crashed. Some of you were old enough to know that. I mean, if you knew as the deer, you knew that, okay? (laughs) But when the stock market crashed in 2008, Right? You know what I'm talking about. So I knew as a deer, by the way. Um, I knew people that lives fell apart. I knew someone that died because they jumped out of a window. When your identity, when your identity is defined by the things of this world, when your definition of hope is defined by your economic status, or by what you can do with the things that you have. When your desire for peace comes at what you can buy, or what you can eat, or how you can insulate yourself from problems, when everything that you're trying to solve that are spiritual problems only have earthly solutions, you're out of balance. Because you can't fix peace with money. You can insulate yourself from anxieties, but you can't gain genuine peace by what you can give financially or the right job. Oh, I just, I've had people tell me over the years, like they, they pursue things. And again, is it wrong to pursue certain status? No, I always have to clarify that because you have the pendulum swingers that say, you're saying that this is bad. No, I'm not. I'm saying God raises people up into different places all over the world in different places, different abilities, different, different uh, positions, different authorities. It has nothing to do with your status. It has everything to do with how much of an identity that becomes in your heart. And are you okay if you're the president of the world? Or if God's calling you to work in your backyard or in your community doing something that no one will ever really acknowledge? When your identity is found in the things of the world, then we have to ask ourselves whether we're storing up our treasures on earth or we're storing up our treasures in heaven. When I struggle with things in my life, like peace, like identity, like contentment, like healing. And the only solutions I see for those things are the things that I can do by playing the game, by what I can buy, by what I can do in my own strength, by establishing some type of plan that only exists within the boundaries of the life that I know. I'm out of balance. Because God has called us to be heaven-focused. Why? Why? Because he wants us to have open hands. He wants us to say, whatever I put in your hands, I am free to take out of those hands. And sometimes I leave them there all of your life because I'm okay with you experiencing X, Y, and Z. But sometimes I'm giving it to you for such a time as this and it all needs to go. I've seen people do some pretty crazy things. 
But can I tell you the truth of the matter? This is not something that applies to just people with a certain amount of wealth. This is a principle that means you could have two pennies to yourself or $200 billion. It doesn't matter. The principle is still the same. A heartbeat of generosity towards God is a heartbeat that says, you can do whatever you want with what I have because if you entrust me with these resources, I will give them towards the things of your kingdom to do as you've called me to do. And that's just one piece of it. The other piece is what I was trying to say was, and then when you are struggling in your life, when you wrestle with things in your life, do you go to the financial things? Do you go to the earthly situations and say, my identity is, is wrapped up in this title or in this position or in this house or in this car or in this, and any of those things that you might talk about. God says, your identity has nothing to do with those things, Paul. Your identity has nothing to do with those things. Your identity is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been purchased. You have been redeemed. You have been healed. You have been drawn and loved beyond your ability to understand why your identity is not found in in who you are and what you've been able to do. Your identity isn't found in what Jesus has done for you. And when we have that understanding and we recognize I could be the wealthiest person in the world, I could be the poorest person in the world, God then says, okay, you have open hands now. And I can allow anything in and I can allow anything out. Focus on the things that are eternal because there will be benefits. Remember what I said, the second point. There'll be benefits in this world just like there will be benefits in others. One of our core values in our church is investing in others. And Proverbs 11.25 is that core value. And it says very specifically, a generous person prospers. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And I don't know how that works for you. I'm willing to bet I do, but I have a good idea and I know how it works for me. When I choose to give myself to the things of the kingdom of God, it pays dividends I could never get from this world. Sometimes it's monetary, sure. Sometimes it's peace. Sometimes the Holy Spirit speaks to me in a way and does things that I go, wow, I had no idea. Wow, and and in that moment, God just draws me a little closer to himself. But it's because I have a heart of generosity to be able to say in those moments, and I just want to make sure I'm careful about this to say, I am not always good at this. There have been seasons in my life where I look at certain things and I go, not this time, God. And God says, you know, I love you. When you're ready to come back to your senses, I'm still here. And in those moments... He graciously, he never looks at us with fists and he never tries to get him under his thumb. With fists open? No, hands open. I mean, with fists closed, with hands open, he says, when you're ready to make that change and to reevaluate what the priorities of life really should be, I'm here. So I'm encouraging this morning, if you choose to make your investment in your life about heavenly things, others' lives will be changed. The kingdom of God will grow. The solutions that you're looking for in your own lives is a better chance of finding that solution when you're looking at the eternal tools and eternal solutions to your problems and not just trying to solve it the Lord's way or the world's way. So how do you do this? There's just two things I want to mention very, very quickly this morning. And our worship team can come up as we get ready to close. But the first thing is this. He says it in verse 22 through 23. He says this, and the point is keep your eyes on Jesus. How do you do this? Keep your eyes on 
Jesus. You could say, what does it mean to keep your eyes on Jesus? It is not about just looking at a picture of Jesus. It's not just about watching a movie about Jesus. Keeping your eyes on Jesus means where he goes, you go. If he walks three, four, five steps in one direction, for you to keep your eyes on Jesus, you have to walk in that direction. And here's what I know about that. Usually where our eyes focus are where our body is where our body eventually follows, right? I mean, the last time I, I, I tried or I noticed, I haven't seen any runners down the road that are running in this direction with their head turned to the side. No, eventually their body goes in the direction that their eyes are focused on, right? Because their eyes help direct what matters versus what doesn't matter. That's what he says in verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? When we look towards, what we look towards ultimately directs where we go. We have to be intent on following Jesus, his words, his instruction, the prompting of his Holy Spirit. You know what that does? It turns our eyes towards him and eventually our body moves in that same direction. If we get our eyes off of Jesus, then we can go wherever everything else tries to lead us and the world around us is trying to entice us with everything that they think is more of a priority. Number two, don't just keep your eyes on Jesus But number two is choose to serve Jesus every day. I think sometimes we've reduced Christianity to events. I made a decision to follow Christ. I came to an altar. I checked a box. I grew up in the church. I was water baptized. Those are moments in your journey. But the journey means every day we choose to follow him. That doesn't mean you're saved tomorrow and you're, you're not saved tomorrow and you're saved today. It's a daily choice. That's why Paul says in Romans 12 to offer ourselves as what? Living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. Get out of bed every day and say, I'm going to choose today whom I will serve. You know, over 2,000 years before that, there's a man named Joshua who said the same thing. And in chapter 24, Joshua 24, 15, we hear him say to the people of Israel, choose this day whom you will what? Serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choosing to serve him every day, church, doesn't put your salvation in question. It's just an intentionality to say, Lord, there are things in my life that I think sometimes I've been in error of letting the world try to solve. And I don't want to do that anymore. So I'm going to fix my eyes on you. Or you've entrusted me with all of these things and they're beautiful things. I want my heart to be postured towards your will, towards your kingdom, so that the things that you've entrusted me with, my family, my influence, my finances, my health, my identity, all these things you've entrusted me with, you have full permission. You have full permission to use me any way you choose to use me. And can I tell you, when you get to that place and you start thinking and talking to the Lord like that, where nothing is off the table, get ready for some really crazy things to start happening in your life. It's only when we limit God in certain ways, when we say, I'll do anything you want me to do here, but you can't touch this. I will do whatever you want me to do in the context of this thing. You can build whatever you want to build in my life as long as it's built upon this unmovable thing in my life. When we do that, 
we limit God's ability to work with us. So ask yourself those questions this morning. What foundation are you building on? What foundation are you continuing to pour into? Because when you're storing up the things for eternity, it is a foundation that never, ever fails. You know the beautiful thing about all of this? When you think about, he talks about money and materialism in this passage. But the greatest problem of mankind is not fiscal or financial. The greatest problem of mankind is spiritual. It's sin. And there is no solution in this world that can fix the problem of sin. That's why we need Jesus. And that's why we sing songs like, Christ is my what? Firm foundation. He's the rock on how I, on who I stand. When everything around me is shaken, I've never been so glad. Can we really say that? We can, because we can be stripped of everything that the world affords us, and we can still be confident to know that Jesus never fails. He's our firm foundation. Let's trust him, and let's walk in a relationship that draws us closer to him. Would you stand with us, please, as the worship team prepares to sing this song? I want to ask, if you want to sing along with us, you can. If you need to come to the altar and spend some time before the Lord, come to the altar. But use this time during this song just to reflect and let the Lord speak to you about where you are in your journey with him. God, we just come before you this morning, and I just pray that we would be mindful of the truth of your word, that we would remember that you really are a firm foundation. And you ask us and you call us to take everything that we've been entrusted with and everything we have to invest and to invest in the things that are kingdom focused. God, may our source of strength and our source of hope come from you and you alone. In your name we pray.